0: Smaller merchants that have not yet made the shift to EMV are feeling the weight of the EMV fraud liability shift that took effect October 1, says Liz Garner of the Merchant Advisory Group. The number and amounts of fraudulent chargebacks hitting these merchants' bottom lines has significantly increased since the liability shift took effect and has been much greater than anyone anticipated. But are these chargebacks fair and justified? Not in all cases, says Garner, who, like others in the retail industry, says the card brands have an obligation to step in and help out. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Liz, could you just give us some sense of the amount of chargebacks that smaller merchants have seen since the October 1 fraud liability shift date?
1: Sure, Tracy. So I think, you know, it's important to note that the Merchant Advisory Group, we represent some of the largest merchants. Um... And this, this problem of post-EMV liability shift chargebacks is not just a small business issue. It's a mid-size and larger business challenge as well. Everybody's kind of in the same boat here. Um, outside of some of the very like, top tier, largest merchants, several people are still waiting to get their equipment certified to accept EMV. And while they wait on the payments industry to come around and do those certifications, they are being hit with very excessive chargeback for counterfeit card fraud. For smaller businesses, those chargebacks can range anywhere from ten dollars to $15,000 a week for some franchisees. You should know the MAG has a couple of heavily franchised industries, both in petroleum, um, where we've really only seen the liability shift for in-store transactions, but also in the quick service restaurant space, which has seen a pretty remarkable uptick already. And their EMV related chargebacks. When you start to look at the mid size and larger businesses, they're seeing anywhere from about four hundred to $500,000 in chargebacks weekly. And for some of my larger merchants, it's up to a million plus chargebacks per week. So this has been a huge, huge liability shift. And I think for us, it's just evidence that EMV to date hasn't shrunk any of the fraud that's really out there. It's just shifting it right now, which isn't the overarching purpose of deploying the new technology.
0: So let's talk about some of these larger merchants because I find this, you know, more than a million dollars a week in chargebacks just extraordinary. What we've been told is that the larger merchants for the most part have been able to make the liability shift. But you're saying that we still see quite a few significant sized merchants that have not yet been able to get EMV terminals up and deployed.
1: Yes, that's correct. Um, and these aren't small merchants. These are merchants with over 800 locations in the U.S. and even larger than that who are seeing anywhere in the range of that sort of $500,000 chargebacks per week to $1 to $2 million. Some of those merchants are partially deployed with EMD already. Some have nearly been waiting. I think it's important to know that hardware has been installed at several of these merchants for many months now, um, but getting the software programming and certifications done, which is something that's a complicated process and involves payment card networks, merchant acquirers, switch providers, the hardware providers, and the software providers as well, having those certifications done really has not been done in a timely manner. And and from the merchant community perspective, we would maintain that the liability shift roadmaps by Visa and others in the payment card industry were very inappropriately carried out here in the states when their own decision-making led us to this backlog in certifications. Merchants aren't there not for lack of trying, um, but because of some of the challenges that the financial service industry has and getting these point-of-sale terminals certified, um, that's one of the pitfalls of inadequate timelines in the first place. Here in the U.S., we had four years, according to the VISA roadmap, to get terminals deployed, whereas in Canada, they had over seven, and it's one-tenth the size of the U.S. economy. So we were really dealing with a deck of stacked cards against us in the merchant community when it comes to this liability shift in the first place. And early indications show that the software specifications really aren't there yet for gas station terminals for fuel pumps. And so those folks are going to be extremely challenged to meet their October 1, 2017 liability shift date, which is a huge deal because of the potential for magnetic stripe fraud at the point of sale that will be ongoing and something that we call a fallback transaction. So people who have fuel pumps are going to have big decisions to make as to how they proceed in allowing certain types of sales um, once that October 1, 2017 liability shift date goes into effect.
0: Liz, in the past you and I had talked about the differing types of certifications and I know that debit certifications were a big challenge. Does that seem to be where the holdup is or is it for credit and debit certification?
1: So one of the challenges is trying to certify all together at once. Um, EMV is one of the most complex certifications and point-of-sale upgrades that the merchant community has seen in the past 10 to 15 years. It's extremely costly and extremely time and resource intensive. That said, most of our members have said that cost is one of the lowest common denominators for not moving forward faster on EMV. It's really been these inadequate timelines and delayed certifications. And yes, there has been a big challenge with the debit specifications for what we call the common application on EMV getting to market. That's been a major challenge because the companies who own EMVCo, the group that's responsible for all the technology behind these EMV smart cards, chip cards that have been rolled out in the U.S., is governed by Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and others in the international card accepting space, and they simply refuse to open up the technology early enough to make it feasible to get debit deployed, in most cases, by the liability shift date. And we're not talking about new technology being opened up. We're talking about 20-year-old technology So patent-pending arguments don't really ring true to me when you're talking about 20-year-old technology and something that really should never be deployed in any country as a closed specification, especially one that is so competitive to the level of U.S. debit where you still have five or six or even more, maybe even upwards of ten different domestic U.S. debit card networks who are more secure and more efficient and less costly for us to route transactions on from the merchant community. So we're very supportive of maintaining the competition in the debit card space. Some merchants did choose to deploy what we call a global application, which contains sort of those EMV co-card brands as routing options on them first without deploying the common application. But one of the challenges we're hearing from some of our merchants is that they're now ready to come back in and program the rest of their EMV program for that common application on debit, and they're having to go through a full recertification process, uh, which is creating additional challenges in getting them up and running to accept all forms of competitive debit on EMV.
0: So Liz, as I mentioned in the introduction, the Merchant Advisory Group, as well as other retail associations, don't really feel that all of these chargebacks are fair. Would you say that the reason that most associations don't feel the chargebacks are fair is because of this backlog that we see in EMV certification?
1: I think that's absolutely fair to say, Tracy. I think when the financial services industry, namely Visa and MasterCard, who put out their roadmaps first, set the roadmaps out for EMV and the liability shift, They really needed to have a plan in place where they and other stakeholders who were responsible for certifying merchants' capability of accepting EMB could get there by October 1, 2015, and by and large that roadmap hasn't been there for merchants, not for lack of trying. Many merchants who wanted to be EMB ready by that October 1 date had absolutely no means to get there, and without those means to deploy EMB, it's 100% not fair for the merchant community, for the card brands to employ the sort of catch-all liability shift that is dictated by them and nobody else. And we absolutely think that's unfair.
0: So Liz, a recent lawsuit that was filed by two small merchants and they actually made it a class action suit, these two small merchants, a grocer and a liquor store, both based in Florida, challenges the fairness of the EMV fraud liability shift date, claiming that a certification backlog on the parts of third party point of sale equipment vendors is to blame. Um, And this is why smaller merchants have not yet been able to make the shift, much of, of what you've been saying here. What are your thoughts about this lawsuit? Do you think this lawsuit could be precedent-setting in some way?
1: You know, I'm not really qualified to comment on the lawsuit itself being a non-lawyer, but I do think it does raise some important issues with the transition to EMB here in the U.S. I think one thing that all of this activity is highlighting, including the filing of the lawsuit, is that the companies who own EMB Co., own and operate EMB Co., as well as the organization itself, really haven't been able to pull off a smooth transition to EMB here in the United States. For that reason, we absolutely think they have no role whatsoever to play when you start to look at the transition to mobile commerce here in the U.S. and the deployment of some of the back-end technologies that accompany mobile commerce. In particular, I'm thinking of tokenization and other security technologies that really they haven't proven their capacity to manage Um, 21st century technology. Like I noted before, EMV is from the 20th century. It's the early 90s technology. And even then, it's been tremendously difficult to get it rolled out here in the U.S. They're the last organization that at least I think we should be looking at to move us into the mobile and digital space. We've got to look outside the box because they've proven through the E&B transition that they're completely inadequate to manage that process for mobile.
0: So Liz, going back to to some of this discussion surrounding the chargebacks, David Matthews of the National Restaurant Association mentioned during an interview that I conducted with him last month that the NRA didn't feel that all of these chargebacks were legitimately quote-unquote fraud, that some of the chargebacks were actually friendly fraud, that the issuing bank just wasn't taking time to investigate, and then in other cases some of the chargebacks were merely miskeyed transactions that, again, issuing banks just weren't taking time to investigate. What are your thoughts there?
1: You know, we're still looking into that, Tracy, but we'd agree with that early assessment of it. Um, we have major concerns that there's very limited transparency into how and why these chargebacks are being charged back. We saw a bunch of interesting items, some of which have been corrected, but we had one brand who was charging back chip on chip transactions after the October 1 liability shift date because of a technical glitch in their system. We had another brand who was allowing transactions that were initiated in late September but cleared in October, so those would be predominantly signature-based transactions to come in and have an EMV code, reason code, charge back. That, for some merchants, has been fixed, where the merchants had noticed that. I'm not sure it's been fixed across the board for smaller and mid-sized merchants. We have seen all sorts of interesting shifts in chargebacks to things that you don't expect to see, such as a merchandise-not-received chargeback in a card-present in-store environment. A merchandise-not-received chargeback is traditionally for a card-not-present transaction where somebody ordered something on the internet or over the phone to have it shipped to their home address or business address. So we are seeing some interesting things pop up in the chargeback space. It's absolutely clear that there needs to be more transparency around what's happening and that somebody who's an unbiased third party really needs to do an assessment of what issuers are doing in the space. And we, we don't think Visa and MasterCard has served the community well and their policing role is that either in these early stages here in the first six months of liability shift.
0: So do you think that the owners should fall back onto the
1: card brands to do more policing, as you put it? That's a really tough question. I think if if they want to perpetuate the chargeback system as it exists, then absolutely. The chargebacks exist because of Visa and MasterCard network rules that were created to help balance out a fraud-prone signature card environment. And by not going to EMV chip and PIN here in the United States, at least putting PIN on all cards, the card brands have put American businesses and consumers at undue risk for continued fraud. Uh, the Kansas City Federal Reserve put out a study about chargebacks earlier this year that basically said chargebacks are non-existent on PIN transactions. So by not taking the international roadmap to chip and PIN here in the states, uh, the car brands have done a disservice to uh, U.S. commerce. And yes, they absolutely need to do a better job of policing what chargebacks do exist in the system because we decided to perpetuate this sort of signature credit card environment, which really, signature is a very bogus form of multi-factor authentication. Signatures are very easy to perpetuate fraud on because you can just sign for whoever um, and see if you can scribble down a couple of marks. A PIN is a unique code that only the owner of that payment card product or phone or other device would know.
0: So that's interesting, Liz. Let's expand there a bit because one of the things that David Matthews was talking about is the fact that the NRA feels, and again, this needs to be looked in a little bit more thoroughly to his own admission, but the NRA feels on the surface that a lot of these chargebacks are just friendly fraud. So a customer, you know, legitimately makes the purchase, but then later on decides, ah, eh, I'm not really interested or I don't feel like paying for that. And so then charges it back. In this case, however, it sounds like if you don't see a lot of chargebacks on PIN transactions, then that would suggest that because we're using signature-based transactions, that most of these chargebacks are fraud.
1: It depends. I think that's a, a very similar landscape as to the previous one where you look at the rate of fraud loss on PIN transactions in a MagStripe environment. And it's about three basis points according to some Federal Reserve data from 2014. It's closer to 11 or 12 on signature. Um, so fraud traditionally is significantly higher on signature based transactions. The difference here is when you look at EMV and the liability shift, merchants were never on the hook for counterfeit card present fraud. There's always been a shared component of card present fraud and fraud losses in the system overall with merchants bearing about 40%. That number jumps remarkably for Internet sales and some mobile commerce sales to 70 to 100% of fraud losses that merchants were bearing prior to this. But when you look at the way the counterfeit card present liability shift went, That card-present counterfeit fraud on signature-based transactions, which is so high, uh, can now be pushed off to the merchant in a lot of cases, which is what I think we're seeing more and more, um, particularly in sort of that quick-service restaurant environment where, you know, you weren't seeing fraud on a $5 hamburger before. That was really unique, and you're starting to see a uh, a lot more sales get charged back, and in a lot of ways that doesn't make sense because that fraud on the five dollar hamburger isn't necessarily happening now and i think that's giving a lot of rise to concern as to well what actually is happening there and there's not a lot of transparency around that right now unfortunately
0: and so moving forward liz do you see organizations like the merchant advisory group stepping in in some way to help I want to say lobby, but maybe just nudge the card brands or maybe even the acquiring and issuing institutions to address these chargebacks in a more transparent way?
1: We have been having some constructive conversations with the card brands surrounding EMV chargebacks and EMV liability shifts. I think we are cautiously optimistic that any of those conversations will actually result in any restitution for merchants who've already seen a tremendous uptick in their financial losses going towards emv related chargebacks, but we're hopeful that at least some of the technical glitches that I was explaining before can be worked out by working more closely with the credit card networks um, and encouraging them to come up with fixes with their issuers. I do think that a slightly less unbiased third party does really need to have more oversight into how issuers are managing chargebacks. Visa and MasterCard, who essentially have those big issuers as customers, are not the right party to do that. And in turn, and Co. isn't necessarily the right party to do that either. I think that is something that regulatory entities here in the U.S. really need to start investigating. And in Congress, uh, the House Small Business Committee has held some hearings on this, but there hasn't been anything really comprehensive since kind of mid mid to late fall last year, it's come back in and looked at some of the issues that are raised in the lawsuit that you mentioned, and I think, you know, that might be the next step forward is to start to increase awareness of what's happening in EMV. Some pictures have been painted in the press that it's, you know, this, this rosy transition, and it's absolutely not that. It's one of the top three things keeping the MAG members up at night has been this EMV transition.
0: Well, Liz, I'd like to thank you again for your time today, and I hope that within the next couple of months, perhaps we can talk again to to get an update on where chargebacks are and what the industry is doing to address them.
1: Great. As always, thanks for having me, Tracy. Again, we've just heard from Liz Garner
0: of the Merchant Advisory Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.